We're in a series called Second Guessing Christmas, and, and the reason for that is that we're taking a look at some of the unusual aspects of this story that surrounds the birth of Christ, things that we don't look at quite so often. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a lonely Christmas celebrating along the banks of the Nile. I know as a child, Christmas was this wondrous day. All the other days afterwards just seemed like ordinary routine days. I've often wondered if um, Mary and Joseph didn't feel that same way. That after all of the events, you know, the excitement of that night when Jesus was born and the visit of the angels and the visit of the shepherds, you know, after a while that becomes sort of a distant fuzzy memory and life sort of settles into a routine. And I wonder if they just kind of thought there will never be another event quite like that. They had not returned to Nazareth, by the way. They had stayed in Bethlehem and found a house. As a carpenter, Joseph could have found work just about anywhere. Carpenters were always needed. They were never wealthy. They were very low on the social uh, status, but they were always needed. And, and so they'd been there probably a year or so, maybe as much as two years after the birth of Christ. And, and then when they were least expecting it. Their world gets turned all upside down, all over again. Suddenly, without, without any kind of warning, this entourage from the east shows up in a spirit of worship with the most extravagant gifts thinkable. They said they were guided by a star that God had sent to show them the place where the child could be found. Mary and Joseph had to be just stunned and I think at that moment they realized that as long as they were taking care of Jesus, their lives would not be ordinary and they certainly wouldn't be routine. The visit of the Magi must have been an absolutely wondrous moment. And after the Magi departed, Matthew gives us this brief insight into the next chapter of their lives. Matthew chapter 2 verse 13 reads like this. When they had gone, and the they is the Magi, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. It's interesting to me that he names the child and then his mother because the focus is on saving the child. Sometimes kids have a little bit different perspective on, on the Christmas story. In a Sunday school class of elementary kids why the teacher had invited all of them to, uh, to draw a picture of their favorite part of the Christmas story and when she gathered them all up there were pictures of the, of the manger scene, there were pictures of the wise men and the shepherds and the sheep and everything you can imagine. Then she came across a picture of an airplane with four passengers in it and she was sort of puzzled and, and so she asked the little boy who drew the picture, she said I, I really don't understand what this has to do with Christmas and he kind of said really? He says, that's the flight into Egypt. <laughs> and she said, oh, okay, all right, I understand that. She said, but in the, in the Bible, there's only three people. There's Mary and Joseph and the baby. I see them in the plane, but who's the fourth character? And he kind of rolled his eyes and said, oh, that's Pontius the pilot. <laughs> Sometimes we get things a little mixed up. 
it's easy to get some things mixed up about the stories and twisted around. And so we want to take care in taking a look at this aspect of the story that surrounds this marvelous event called Advent and see how it plays into our own lives because I'm convinced there's some good things that we can learn from it. Their lives are anything but routine. And you talk about a change. Herod unleashed his cruel anger on the village of Bethlehem by killing some of the boys in that community. And the family of Jesus barely escaped that night. If they weren't so scared and lonely before, they would be scared and lonely now. By the way, on the 80-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, when they came down to be registered in the census, they would have been traveling with all kinds of people on the road because everybody was going back to their ancestral town for the census. But the 80 miles from Bethlehem to the border of Egypt, they would have been traveling that one alone. I wish we had more details about this event, but we can piece together a few things that I think are, are rather interesting. Matthew writes his gospel basically to the Jewish people. And so Matthew incorporates a lot of the Old Testament scriptures making applications to the prophecies of old, ties everything in. And lo and behold, when you start looking at this, this picture, this journey of Jesus into Egypt, it really is reminiscent of the whole sojourn of the Israelites in Egypt. Remember Moses, the, the, the baby Moses? There was a law at that day and time that any Jewish woman that gave birth to a son, that son was to be killed by throwing in the Nile. But Moses, his parents fashioned this little basket, put him in there and floated him down the Nile and the princess of Egypt found him and raised Moses in the palace. And in like fashion, here comes Herod to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem and Jesus escapes with his life in a miraculous way. And like the Israelites who left Egypt the very night of the last plague, so Joseph took his family and left Bethlehem the very night of the dream. The Magi had been guided to Jesus' place of residence by a star that moved. And the Israelites had been guided back to the promised land, the same general area, by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night that moved. It represented the presence of God. And when it came time to come back home, it was very reminiscent of how God called Moses back home to his native Egypt. Exodus chapter 4 verse 19 says, Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. And when the angel came uh, and spoke to Joseph, said, It's time to take the boy back home because the one who sought his life is now dead. You cannot escape this picture of, of what happened with Jesus and what happened with the Israelites of the Old Testament. And then Matthew quotes the prophet Hosea in chapter 11 verse 1. When, the when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. Now what you have to remember is that the context of this refers to the Jewish nation coming out of Egypt. But, but prophecy has an immediate fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment from that standpoint. That the, At the time Hosea writes, he's talking about the captivity into which the, the Jewish nation would be going. And, and when he ultimately looks down the road, he is seeing how God called Jesus, the Son of God, out of Egypt. So imagine Jesus spending time in this place where his people had been captive slaves for 400 years. Now, at the time that Mary and Joseph uh, fled there, there were approximately a million Jews living in Egypt, and most of them had settled in the area of Alexandria. 
We don't know how long they stayed. Uh, maybe a, a few months, maybe a year or two. The Bible doesn't tell us. But what an adventure. Uh, and you say, well, how did they survive? I mean, how did they have money to get by in Egypt? I mean, a place like that, you're going to have to have extra funds. All right. They had a gift of gold they just received from the Magi. They also had frankincense and myrrh, this incense uh, and, and uh, this, this sweet perfume. These things were more valuable than gold at the time. And so they could have been sold for the money that would have sustained them. And a carpenter, when he leaves town, never leaves town without his tools. And so Joseph would have been able to have picked up his carpenter trade right there and earned some money as well. I, I don't think there's any problem with them being sustained while they're there. But picture the toddler Jesus walking where Moses had walked and where his people had suffered. Years later, Moses would visit him at the Mount of Transfiguration. Did they settle in the land of Goshen where the first Joseph had settled his own family? Did they ever visit the Red Sea where God had parted the waters? Were they in Egypt long enough to celebrate the Passover that first occurred in Egypt when death passed through the land and took the lives of the firstborn? I've got lots of questions about this time in Egypt. The Bible doesn't supply any of the answers, but there are some lessons that come out of this story that I don't think we want to miss. And here's the first one. Bad things happen in this world to good people. I think that is probably one of the issues most people who are not a part of the church struggle with most. And, and actually, a lot of us in the church struggle with that as well. How could a loving God allow evil to exist? Now, folks, I wish I had time this morning in this message to explore the depths of that question. There are some really good answers to that question, but time won't permit me to go into that. It's just the fact that that God has never promised to intervene in this broken world. And the world is broken not because of his choice, but our choice. The sin of humanity has brought that about. The tragic events of this week in San Bernardino, California, remind us that innocent people sometimes suffer at the whims of wicked people. And of all places for such a tragedy to occur, it was a Christmas party. There is far, far more irony in that than what we may realize at a glance. What happened this week is part of a spiritual battle that is raging in our world. And when I first heard about the evil deed, I immediately thought about this event in Matthew. Why did the angel warn Joseph to take his family to Egypt? It was to save the one who would become the savior of the world from just this kind of a tragedy. In his anger, the evil Herod decided to kill all the boys two years old and younger to eliminate the threat that somebody, a king that had been born in Bethlehem, would rival him for his throne. This too was a spiritual battle. Satan was trying to squelch the life of Jesus before he reached that age where he would be our savior. I, 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 I've thought about this. You, you'd think, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think that of all times... For God to intervene and prevent some bad things from happening. He'd want to prevent anything from happening surrounding the birth of his son that was negative. But God does not intervene to spare the lives of these boys who were needlessly killed in Bethlehem. How many families suffered? How many boys died? Historians estimate that due to the size of the village of Bethlehem at that time, that maybe 30 boys were two years old and younger that died. 
Now, there may have been a lot more than that. We don't know. But even if it was just 30, that's 30 families that are thrust into this grieving unnecessarily just because of this sinister, self-centered, demented monarch. Sometimes people look at the story and say, well, you know, if God was really a loving God and a caring God, he would have left his own son there to suffer the same fate as all those other boys. That way he could really relate to the pain of the people and the parents who lost their children. That's what a loving God would have done. Now hear me carefully. Nothing could be farther from the truth. As I've already mentioned in the first place, God has never promised to protect us from bad things. God didn't even protect himself or his son from the bad things. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, the Bible says. Life in this world has been shattered by the destructive power of sin, and that makes life tough. It makes it unjust. It makes it unfair in this world. Secondly, the boys who died in Bethlehem, I believe, were taken home to be with God. There's nothing so sad as the death of an infant, but if we believe what the New Testament teaches, that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord, And if we believe that those who have not reached an age of understanding are under the grace of God, then these boys escaped the hardships of this world and went right home to be with God. And if we believe that heaven is far greater and far more glorious and far more splendorous than what we can conceive in our mind, then that wasn't such a bad trade. You know what I mean? It is not the grief for the boys. They were taken into the presence of God immediately. It is for the parents that we grieve. But here's what we miss at a casual glance at this story. If Jesus hadn't been spared so that he could grow up to become our sacrifice for sin, then none of us, including the boys from Bethlehem, would have any hopes of heaven. You see, prior to the sacrifice of Christ, all of the people of the Old Testament looked forward to what God was going to do in the Messiah when he came. All of us who live on this side of the resurrection look back to that moment in time to what God did for us at the cross, which means, folks, that everybody that's in heaven will be there because of the sacrifice and the death of Jesus Christ. He's the only one that paid for our sins. That's what Paul was trying to communicate to the church at Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The potential is for everyone who accepts Jesus Christ to be saved because he paid the price. And don't forget this. Within 30 years, God would know the pain of losing his only son. He would be able to relate to those people. Now, what I would love to know, what I would love to know is how many of these parents in Bethlehem, years later, discovered Jesus, became followers of his, and when they died, were reunited with their sons in heaven to live out their glorious eternity together. You see, their sons lived eternally because God's son died here. God has done everything possible 
to make salvation available to us through Jesus Christ. So when life is tough, when it's unfair, when it's broken, when the innocent suffer at the hands of the wicked, you hang on to Jesus Christ because he is our only hope. And never forget that the evil one is constantly working to destroy everything that God has made good. But his day will come, and he knows that day will come, and until that day comes, he's going to cause as much disruption to the body of Christ and to the message of the gospel as he possibly can. But God does bring justice. There is a day and time when God will right the wrongs. By the way, if it makes you feel any better, Herod did not die peacefully in his sleep. The, the historian Josephus describes that in the days leading up to his death, he was in excruciating pain. To simply put it this way, he was eaten from the inside out by gangrene. A horrible death, much deserved. But sometimes we see justice in this world. Sometimes we don't. But God will right the wrongs. Here's the second thing. Loneliness is part of life, and we need to find ways that we can deal with it. Have you ever contemplated why Mary and Joseph stayed in Bethlehem after Jesus was born? Why did they not go back to Nazareth? I'll tell you what I think. This is my opinion. I think they had been disowned, or at least dismissed, at what appeared to their family and friends as an illegitimate birth. I don't think they bought Mary's story, that she was still a virgin and this child was of God. I think they felt that she was trying to explain away that which was unexplainable. Now, now here's what I want you to see. They were not, they could not have been the only family members that went to Bethlehem. Both on Joseph's side and Mary's side, they were all descendants of David, so they would have all been going back to Bethlehem. Surely, if Mary was a teenager when she gave birth to Jesus, her parents were still alive. They would have been going there. Brothers and sisters would have been going there. Aunts and uncles and cousins would have been going there. We have no record that they traveled with any family, that any family was available to them. They, they gave birth and laid Jesus in a feeding trough. No family member present. So disowned were they that even though they were in the midst of all these people, they were all alone. I, I, I guess maybe it's because I'm at this stage in my life. But the question arises in my mind. Did, did the grandparents of Jesus ever acknowledge him? Did they ever hold him? Rock him? play with him, feed him. Did his grandparents miss God in their midst in the person of their grandson? No mention is ever made of extended family. No wonder Mary and Joseph stayed in Bethlehem. And if that loneliness wasn't deep enough, now they are headed away from everything that is familiar. They're headed to a foreign country, to foreign customs, to a foreign language. They would feel lonelier than ever. We often forget that the Christmas season, with all of its hype and its excitement and all the planning that we do and all of the family things that we do, that there are a lot of people at this time of the year who are extremely lonely. Some who do not have family any longer. And some who just 
don't make the connections. They don't have the relationships. You know, you don't have to be alone to be lonely. Robert Putnam, in his book, Bowling Alone, cites the fact that our nation is growing ever farther away from the relationships that really make a difference. He says in 1950, only 5% of America had televisions. And of course, now today, we are were, we were inundated, not just by television, but all kinds of electronic media that keeps us from building relationships. He said today, we have 60% fewer picnics with our family than we did just a few years ago, and 40% fewer dinners together, meals that we eat together as a family. He said, we are lonelier and growing farther apart because we are not building on our relationships. There are a lot of lonely people. You may be one of them this morning. If, if that's the case, can, can I give you just a few things? If you're feeling lonely, let, let me suggest a couple things. Try a couple of these things. Take care of yourself, first of all. Eat well, get you some exercise, because if you're not doing well physically, you're, you're, you're going to be a mess and, and you won't be able to think right. So take care of yourself, eat good, get some exercise. Here's something else. Go do something fun that'll make you laugh. If you're lonely and you haven't laughed for a while, which you probably haven't, Go to a funny movie or, 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 or get with somebody that will make you laugh. Which brings me to the third thing is force yourself to be around other people and start building relationships. You say, but I'm an introvert. Okay, so you're an introvert. Force yourself to reach out to somebody. Because if you reach out a little bit, somebody is likely to reach back. Because everybody needs somebody. And, and it will help bridge this loneliness. Here's probably the most important thing to do, and that is go help somebody. If you're lonely and you know somebody has a need, go help somebody meet that need. And it will, it will bring a joy to you that you can't imagine. Now, we've done this in the past. We're going to do it again. It's out in the foyer at the Adopt-A-Family uh, kiosk. We've got names of our widows, widowers, and shut-ins. If you would pick up one of those and then just do something nice. They are probably potentially the lonelier people among us at this season of the year. Send them a nice card with a note. Take them some kind of a treat. Offer to help them with their Christmas decorations or some of their Christmas shopping. Use your imagination and be creative. Anything we can do to help encourage somebody else will in turn encourage us. So in this lonely season of the year for somebody, you find who is lonely and come alongside of them and bring some encouragement, all right? Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, up to this point, this sermon has been pretty depressing. Well, yeah, I guess it is when you talk about bad things happening to good people and people being lonely, but, but that's not the end of the story. So <laughs> hang on with me for just a couple more minutes here. Here we go. God understands every aspect of our lives. Now, I find this incredibly encouraging. I hope you do as well. There is no situation, there is no struggle, there is no heartache that I face or that you face which the Lord cannot sympathize. That's huge. No one will ever be able to point a bony finger in the face of God in eternity and say, you didn't know, you couldn't understand what I felt. Oh, yeah. God knows how we feel in every situation. That's what separates Christianity from all the rest of the religions of the world. In religion, humanity reaches up in a vain effort to seize the attention of God. In Christianity, God reaches down to seize the attention of humanity. In religion, self-inflicted pain is used to demonstrate one's repentance to earn the favor of God. In Christianity, God bestows his favor by taking upon himself our pain. In religion, the worshiper must make the ultimate sacrifice to appease God. But in Christianity, God made the ultimate sacrifice at the cross to pay the price of our sin that we might be united with him. 
There's plenty in this story to suggest that God understands us completely. You say, well, I, I'm, I'm poor. I just don't have anything. I don't have two nickels to rub together. That's okay. Jesus was poor. Lived all of his life in poverty. Jesus owned one thing, a seamless robe that they gambled for at the foot of the cross when he died. That's all he had. Never owned a home. Nothing like that. Well, I've been rejected by my family and friends. Jesus was rejected by family and friends. His own brothers did not accept him for who he was until after the resurrection. Well, I'm not very pretty or handsome. I don't have those kind of glorious celebrity good looks. Neither was Jesus. The Bible says that he was not handsome by the world's standards. I've lost somebody to death. God says, so have I. Well, I've been tempted in the depths of my soul. Jesus said, so have I. I've been misunderstood. Jesus said, so was I. I've never been married. Jesus says, neither was I. I don't have any children. Jesus said, I don't have any children. The list is endless. I heard that one of the young ladies killed in the San Bernardino tragedy was a Christian refugee who had escaped her homeland in the Middle East to come to the United States so she would be safe as a Christian here. How tragically ironic that here in this land of safety, she meets her demise. And then it struck me, not even a refugee can say, God, you don't understand because Jesus was a refugee from the land of Israel into the land of Egypt where he went in order to be safe for his life. And you say, yes, but I'll tell you one thing Jesus never experienced, and that is guilt and the pain of sin. No, you're wrong there too. Jesus never committed a sin, but the Bible says that on the cross, he became sin for us. All of our sins were piled upon him. So he knows the pain of that sin and that guilt in a way that you and I will never understand. God understands all my weaknesses and my flaws. He's been there ahead of me, and yet he loves me. Now, if that isn't encouraging to you, I don't know what else can be. We serve a God who understands us from top to bottom and has been there in every other circumstance. Here's the last thing. There is hope in the Lord's return. The good news is that Jesus didn't stay in Egypt. He came back. In the Bible, Egypt seems to represent the world and all the struggles that we face. And Judea in the Bible represents the promised land, the place of God's blessing, the place that symbolizes heaven. Jesus didn't remain in exile. He came back to save his people. What does that mean for us? That means one of these days he's coming back to take us home to be with him. I read about this mansion in the Bronx with a very unusual purpose. It's called the Chapel Hill Mansion. It boasts of a chandelier from the Plaza Hotel, a fireplace made to look like one in the White House, and other extravagant furnishings. The builder was Genevieve Griscom, and even though she was incredibly wealthy, she lived in a shack on the property and just took care of this mansion. And you think, what, what's up with that? Well, Genevieve had a, a rather distorted view of, of the return of Jesus. She built this mansion so that when Jesus returned, he would have a wonderful, beautiful place to live. Now, that's a sweet thought, but it's theologically messed up. <laughs> when Jesus returns, it will not be to live in a house here with us. He will return to take us to live in a glorious place with him. 
That's our hope. Besides that, right now, he's not looking for a mansion to live in. He's looking at a life to live in. He wants your life and mine. And when we give him our hope, our lives, our faith, he in turn gives us a reason for looking past the tough times to the future. Don't lose hope. Things may not be right in this life, but if Christ is your Savior, then you have the hope of someday being with him. There's a beautiful legend I want to close with. It's, it's the legend of a thief by the name of Dismas who um, was a part of a band of thieves that roamed the southern part of Judea. And the story goes that as Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus were on their way to Egypt, they were accosted by this band of thieves, and they were going to be robbed. And boy, they had a lot to lose. They had gold and frankincense and myrrh after all. But this, this man, Dismas, saw in the eyes of Jesus something unique. In this toddler's face, he just couldn't get past it. And he, and he basically said, as the legend goes, you know, we, we cannot rob this family. We, we need to let them pass. The rest of them didn't want to, but he was adamant. And so Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus were allowed to leave, and they were not robbed. Dismas didn't change his ways. For three decades, he lived this life of thievery until the law caught up with him and he was brought to court. He was convicted of his robbery and sentenced to die crucifixion. The sentence was carried out on a Friday morning just outside of Jerusalem on a little hilltop. He and one of his compatriots were crucified there, but they weren't alone on that hilltop. There was a man in the middle, slightly younger than either of them. And on the placard above his head, it read, King of the Jews. Dismas finally caught the eyes of the man on the middle cross, and that's when it all came flooding back. In those eyes, he saw that child. He knew it, the pieces of the puzzle fell into place, and Dismas turned and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now the first part of the legend and the name Dismas is just that, a legend. But the last part of the story is our hope. That if a thief, if a thief can turn to Jesus and say, remember me, Lord, then we can turn to the same Savior and grasp that same promise and say, remember me, Lord, when we come, when you come into your kingdom. When it's time, when you return, take me home. You see, in your loneliness, if you walk with Jesus, you're never alone.